and welcome to it, everybody. This is the Derek Hunter Podcast. The date is Wednesday, October 25th, in the absurdly futuristic sounding year of 2023. Nothing's hovering yet. I just looked out a window, but those hover cars have to be coming soon. I will keep watch for you. My name is Dean Carianis. I am filling in for the titular host of the show for the rest of this week. I am a columnist at the New York Sun. I am the host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and I also am a Fox News Channel escapee. I worked there during the early days. A lot of us jumped from Russia's TV show over to Fox with the executive producer of Russia's show, Roger Ailes, and I'm happy every day. I thank God that I'm no longer in the cable news business in that every 30-minute news wheel. seemed like a hamster wheel, but they called it a news wheel. It's pretty unwatchable now, unfortunately. I, I hate to say that, but it is just the case. I find it very hard to watch. Maybe that's just me. I'm a super cynical guy. I'm a longtime member of Rush Limbaugh's highly overrated staff. I drive a million miles to be with you tonight. So if you're feeling low, turn up your radio. Everybody Wang Chung, I'm talking to all of you in the back row, those of you stuck in traffic right now, maybe you're tired, you had a long day at work, you want to just sleep in tonight, crack a beer and be left alone, say, Dean, come on, can I get a pass? No, sir, you cannot. You're not in the mood to Wang Chung, you get in the mood, mister. That's why we are all here to have some fun. Please do support the show and all the fun Derek has every day right here and also in his columns in thehill.com. He's at patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast and at derekhunter.locals.com. Find me at historyauthor.com and from there navigate through to all my social media platforms. Those include at History Dean on Twitter because honestly, I didn't want to make anyone have to spell my last name. It's just too hard for all of you out there, except the Greeks who think it's an easy name, and they'll tell you that and mean it. Speaking of Twitter, and no, it's going to be a cold day before I call it X, I want to thank Dana Marie. She goes by the Twitter handle ConserveDMC. That's all one word, ConserveDMC. Sounds just like I said it, except there's no E there on the end of serve. But she sent me a very nice message on Twitter, and she told me I'm doing, quote, an awesome job filling in for Derek. So thank you so much, Dana, and anybody else out there who wants to tell me how I'm doing, positive or negative. The positive praise is great, keeps you going, but sometimes the criticisms, those are the ones that you grow from. So anyone who has something to tell me, please do feel free to shoot me a tweet at History Dean or contact me anywhere else. And here now, the news. <laughs> now the news with the first word spoken on Fox News Channel. After all that racing we did up to October 16th, I guess the date was, 1996. That shows you what the original roots of Fox were. Actual news, not a lot of sensationalism, and it's changed a lot, unfortunately, in recent years. Let's kick off here with the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Former President Barack Obama made a statement on the conflict. He wrote in the medium of the people living in Gaza, quote, hundreds of thousands have been forced from their homes. The Israeli government's decision to cut off food, water, and electricity to a captive civilian population threatens not only to worsen a growing humanitarian crisis, it could further harden Palestinian attitudes for generations, erode global support for Israel, play into the hands of Israel's enemies, and undermine long-term efforts to achieve peace and stability in the region, unquote. Okay, 
Holding back is not how wars end. And there are people incredibly in America who feel like this about Hamas, right? What do they call for? They don't call for peace with Israel. They call for wiping Israel off the map and driving the fortunate Jewish people there into the sea and the rest are going to suffer the horrible fate. We just saw all of these innocent civilians suffer in Israel. They know that's the goal, to kill every last person that opposes them. That's Hamas's goal. And we all know that. Yet with Israel, we seek to say, tie an arm behind your back. And when you do that, you just drag out the bloodshed. You don't end it any faster. What President Obama is saying here, that's not the way wars are successfully concluded to advance humanity. He has that thing he always likes to say, and a lot of people like to say it, which actually the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. borrowed from somebody who had said it previously, but about the arc of history bending and it bends towards justice. That's what we want to think. We want to think all these high-minded words and that that's great. But history shows us sometimes things that we do not want to read. And one of them is you win wars by pounding the other side. You win them by forcing them to accept surrender. And this is something I wrote about in a New York Sun column last Thursday titled, Biden seeks to reduce the cruelties of war rather than let Israel force Hamas to surrender. In this piece, I talked about the need for Israel to impose an unconditional surrender on Hamas. If you'll permit me to pat myself on the back, the Wall Street Journal wrote that in an editorial yesterday. They used that same phrase, unconditional surrender of Hamas. So I'm always happy to get ahead of the other papers, something we tried to do at nysun.com. And I am not just trying to capture your dime, as Paul Simon sings in one of his songs that I mentioned last time I was on for Derek. But we really do want to restore some of the faith in journalism that has been trashed over time. We want to be real news and we want people to trust us, even if they might disagree. Hopefully they'll always learn something. And that's one of the things that I think in this particular column about the Civil War and the way the Union ultimately won, put an end to those five years of bloodshed by getting Ulysses S. Grant, who went straight at the Confederate Army and smashed it. And there were people at the time, those of you who aren't Civil War buffs may be shocked to know, all five former presidents who were alive at the time opposed the war. They wanted a peace conference. They met for a peace conference. Many of them did and tried to discuss a velvety divorce, tried to discuss ways to appease the South, keep them in the Union, avoid the bloodshed, all the things we hear about now. I'm sure they would have loved the idea of a ceasefire. Israel is supposed to take that pile of 1,300 dead individuals and say, they call timeout. Remember when you were a kid, you'd have a base in games and you couldn't be tagged, couldn't be it if you were touching the base. That's what Hamas wants. And it is a very childish view of it. That is not how wars work and are won. So let me get to this column and share with you some of the observations from it. It has a beautiful picture of that statue of William Tecumseh Sherman, all in gilded gold in New York City. Great statue. Definitely check it out if you're ever in New York City. Well, always check out every statue, but I'm a history guy, so I always do that. The piece starts, President Biden is urging Israel to avoid harming civilians in its war with Hamas. By saddling the country with that burden, the president ensures that the cycle of violence rolls on, failing to learn the lessons of the past where America achieved lasting peace only through total victory. As an aside here, when was the last time America won a war cleanly? Had a parade, came home, finished the occupation, made the country into an ally the way that we did in World War II. You have to go all the way back to World War II. And this piece covers some of the reasons why that has become the new normal in America is to go 
risk young lives, lose young lives, and at the end, everything is just as it was before and the enemy has been allowed to survive. Back to the piece. Speaking at Tel Aviv on Wednesday, Mr. Biden said, quote, the Palestinian people are suffering greatly. The people of Gaza need food, water, medicine, and shelter. Last week, the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said, terrorists like Hamas deliberately target civilians, but democracies don't, unquote. Now, these are noble sentiments, everybody, but they are, they are not only off the mark, they are not only wildly Pollyannish, but they show an ignorance of history. Hamas is Gaza's governing body. It was elected with 44.4% of the vote in 2006, and I go out there to that decimal point because 44.4 is about equal to the 43.9% of Adolf Hitler's party when he came to power in 1933. And although those were minority parties, civilian supporters and opponents alike paid the price when the nations they attacked fought back. And that's only the voting percentage. I don't know what the support right now is for Hamas. It's not a place you can easily poll, but it's terrible for people who sincerely are there and oppose them. But it was horrible for the people in Germany who opposed Hitler as well. This is how wars are fought. I wrote about how at the urging of the Soviet Union in 1945, Britain's Deputy Prime Minister Clement Attlee ordered the firebombing of Dresden. That killed 25,000 people. And that same year, between 80,000 and 130,000 Japanese civilians died when America unleashed incendiary bombs on Tokyo. And I just jumped past those numbers, but think about how many people that is. 25,000, that sounded bad at Dresden. But then 80,000 to 130,000 civilians? You're talking Michigan's big house. I think that has about 106,000 people is the capacity. They knew exactly what they were doing. Don't say that democracies don't target civilians. That's part of war. We never made those distinctions until very, very recently. And funny how it only breaks one way. It only breaks in favor of the people who are trying to kill us. The aggressor sets the rules in a conflict, and Hamas did exactly that because it benefits them to hide behind innocent civilians. They love civilian casualties. That's what they are all about. Where else do you see supposed doctors posing with dead bodies? How about a little dignity for the dead? You know, the U.S. military, under President Obama's orders, gave Osama bin Laden a Muslim funeral, traditional Muslim funeral, all the trimmings. Some U.S. Navy seamen, and I'm going to try to keep the anger out of my voice, had to go with a sponge and clean that disgusting piece of garbage's body before they gently laid him to rest in the Persian Gulf. Actually, let's call it the Arabian Gulf, just to tick off the supreme dictator of Iran. So they lay Osama bin Laden to rest in a traditional funeral in the Arabian Gulf, put him in the water. And yet you look at Hamas, they don't have the respect for their own dead. We need to drive a wedge between people who aren't for this kind of violence and people who are. But statements like the former president and the current president and also the secretary of state, they don't help get to that goal. They immediately weaken the position of Israel. And you compare that to President Ulysses S. Grant when, as a general, he prosecuted America's war to crush the Confederate states, despite the suffering he knew it would cause those loyal to the Union who were behind enemy lines. While some demanded ceasefires and negotiations in 1863 at Vicksburg, for instance, this is Vicksburg, Mississippi, the key to the South, the key to that mighty old man river, civilians, they're eating muskrats. They're digging into caves to escape the shelling. They're suffering the whole time. They're miserable, mud, dirt. And what did Grant do? 
He didn't go soft. He demanded complete capitulation. Lay down your arms and you all get to come out. Don't lay down your arms and we're going to continue to punish the city, anyone who's in there, even the civilians who remain. After hearing that Grant had written, he was demanding unconditional surrender. And this was a friends of his, by the way, because he knew all these guys from West Point. They all knew him. They were pals. But he was still going to win that war. He wasn't going to let himself go soft. And afterwards, when Americans read that Ulysses S. Grant, U.S. Grant, had demanded unconditional surrender, they said that the U.S. in his name stood for unconditional surrender, unconditional surrender Grant. And when President Lincoln promoted Grant to General-in-Chief of the Army in March of 1864, the two men authorized seizing and destroying civilian property that supported the enemy's war effort. Think about that for a minute. Next time you hear some civilian structure was destroyed in Gaza, think about that. The object here, though, wasn't vengeance. I'm not trying to tear down America, certainly not tear down Lincoln or Grant, but this was necessary. Grant and Lincoln had to wear down local support for the rebellion. There was no other way to do that. There was no way to spare civilian suffering and still have those same civilians doing things as basically as giving food to the soldiers passing through. The women of the South, you may have heard, they were saving their urine so that they could use the nitrate to make explosives for the war effort. Everybody was part of this and people recognized it back then. Major General Philip Sheridan was one who executed Grant's strategy in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. And he had this great line, and this is what stuck me that I wanted to put in this column. And that was, he said, he wanted to leave the valley a barren waste so that even crows flying over it would have to carry provisions with them. So I always like to picture the little crow flying over with his lunchbox. Maybe it has Welcome Back Cotter on the lunchbox. That's what I would have had on my lunchbox if I was a crow. But serious stuff. But the imagery, I can't help it. A little dark gallows humor. But who brought the war on? This was the important question. And when they were laying waste to the Shenandoah Valley, they knew they were punishing the people who had voted for the war. Don't forget those counties out in Western Virginia at the time stuck with the Union. That, that actually wasn't something that the Constitution allowed to carve a new state out of an existing state, but Lincoln did it anyway. The people there were loyal to the Confederacy, and it was necessary, since they had brought the war, to carry the war home to them. Grant's Lieutenant General William Tecumseh Sherman wrote in 1864, so this is the war still having a year left, War is the remedy our enemies have chosen. Other simple remedies were within their choice. You know it, and they know it but they wanted war. And I say, let us give them all they want. Not a word of argument, not a sign of let up, no cave in till we are whipped or they are. Now, I don't know, I'm not one of Bibi Netanyahu's speechwriters, but that would be a great line to say. People still to this day, he's horrible, he's a warmonger, Sherman. He'd seen war and he knew how to end it. And he spoke about this. I wrote this in the column. Sherman knew that half measures, far from being kind, would only prolong the suffering on all sides, and anything short of total victory of Grant's unconditional surrender would allow the South to rise again, as has happened repeatedly with Hamas. And those of you old enough to remember, there were still people, even back in the 70s, and Jimmy Carter gets elected. He gets elected governor first by playing up that Confederate notion and playing up that Southern nationalism. There were still Confederates in the South that said, the South shall rise again. I don't think you hear that much anymore. And guess what? It never happened. Why? Because Grant crushed them into the ground. 
Sherman vowed to make Georgia howl, and he did it with his march to the sea. There's one incident where somebody living there, after he's kicking the crap out of Georgia and burning everything, and the person says, why don't you go to South Carolina? They started the whole thing, go punish South Carolina, because that was the seat of secession. I don't want to leave Stan that he burned intentionally all of Atlanta. That's something that got out of hand, and he was following the rules of war, which is something that Biden talks about now in Israel, and I believe Israel is. It's really kind of silly to tell them to obey the rules of war. They knock on buildings. They use those roof knockers, right, to warn civilians inside and make phone calls and tell people to evacuate. After their surrender, Sherman told the leaders of Atlanta, which was a major transportation and manufacturing hub for the Confederacy, war is cruelty. There is no use trying to reform it. The crueler it is, the sooner it will be over. As Sherman's army left Atlanta to continue its scorched earth march towards Savannah, he ordered any buildings in the city with military or industrial value to the Confederacy to be burned to deny those resources to rebel forces. Think of that line, the crueler it is, the sooner it will be over. How long have we been dragging out what's going on in Israel, allowing terrorists to rise up instead of getting rid of all the terrorists, killing all the terrorists, so that we get to some people who actually want to talk peace, who don't just want to have genocide in the region. Hamas, that terrorist Arafat before him at, with the PLO, President Clinton said, I offered Arafat everything that he wanted, and he still rejected peace. They don't want peace. Think about Hitler in World War II. What did we have to do? We had to kill Hitler. We had to kill a whole bunch of the top generals until we got to a Nazi who would sign on the line that is dotted that they had lost the war and that the United States and its allies were the victors. That's what you have to do with fanatics like these. 14 years after the war ended at Michigan's Military Academy graduation, this was 1879, Sherman made the famous statement, war is hell. And it was a warning to graduates against romanticizing battle or failing to prosecute hostilities with all their might when it was thrust upon them. Hamas, just like the Germans, just like the Japanese in World War II, had peaceful options available and chose instead to make Gaza unsuitable for families. They launched an attack against Israeli civilians, deliberately targeting them. In response now, the IDF is making war, and that means innocent civilians, like those in Germany, Japan, and the Confederacy, will pay the price, unjust as it is. Hamas would love nothing more than to arm every child and declare there are no civilians in Japan. Everybody was going to fight for bloody inch upon bloody inch. We cannot apply our values to wars like this against people who are so fanatical. Don't forget, too, Japan was threatening much like Hamas is. They were going to execute 25,000 Allied prisoners of war. They were going to execute anybody who was a non-Japanese person in the event of a land invasion, something that's definitely left off the list whenever people talk about the nuclear bombings. It's unjust that some of those among them who are reasonable, who are peaceful, are going to pay the price. But that's on Hamas, just as it was on Hitler, just as it was on Hirohito and Tojo. It's not on us. And I think the Civil War is just a great example because we can really relate to it. We sing all those beautiful songs and we love that picture of the old men hugging at Gettysburg in 1915, veterans from both sides. But that war was indeed hell. And unfortunately, the Confederates had to be crushed, failing to crush them, just as failing to crush Hamas. That just sows the seeds of the next conflict, exactly what happened in World War I when Germany stopped fighting in November of 1918 under the terms of an armistice. They get home and they said, hey, we didn't sign an unconditional surrender. We didn't lose that war. Guess who that planted the seeds for? 
that weird little guy who stole Charlie Chaplin's mustache. War is still cruelty, and by pushing Israel into the impossible task of trying to refine it, Mr. Biden only dooms the chance of lasting peace, as does Barack Obama. President Obama mentioned hardening attitudes for a generation, and that reminded me of another example from the Civil War, the Siege of Vicksburg. That's a perfect example, and this was done to fellow Americans. This was not done out of sadistic cruelty, not because we thought it wouldn't inspire other nations to recognize the Confederacy by making them sympathetic to the Confederate civilians that were trapped inside the siege lines, behind the siege lines, but because the war had to be ended and that meant breaking the city. So I want to share with you a historian who talked about some of what happened in Vicksburg. This is a segment from one of my most popular history author show interviews, at least based on YouTube traffic, which is significant because this is an audio only interview before I started doing video. The gentleman you're going to hear is Donald L. Miller, and his book is called Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign that broke the Confederacy. I watched Ken Burns' series on the Civil War at the time of uh, Desert Storm when I was teaching a class on the Civil War. And I was learning it as I was teaching it. And I wondered why Ken had skipped over Vicksburg so quickly. And it turns out he didn't have enough images to tell the story as deeply as he did Gettysburg. And I got interested in the place, reading. and But then I said, I got to go there. So I went down, and luckily I ran into a guy named Ed Bars down there, and Ed is a legendary Civil War guide, and he's got his own brigade, you know, and follows him around. I've met them on the trail as I was pushing this book on my book tour, and um, I'd never met Ed before. He's a World War II veteran, uh, a Marine, fought a Tinian, has a withered arm, but today's, I think, 93 years old. Uh, he was... Wow full of vitality, full of energy, and he's one of these guys that the, we met, and he said, you know, you're starting a book on Vicksburg, I'm going to give you a tour of the battlefield, and for two days I followed him around, and then he introduced me to his buddy, Warren Graybow, who was writing The Geographic History of Vicksburg. Warren knew the territory, Warren's an engineer, a topographer, and they really gave me this sense that you really have to understand all the streams around there, the roads, the bayous that drove me all over the place recommended that I rent a, a small powerboat, go up the Yazoo River, go into the bayous, watch how the waters flow, take the names down, walk the hills, walk with, you know, the people had, when Vicksburg was bombarded, there were people living in, in caves. Now, none of the caves remained, but these guys knew where these old caves were and understand something about the, the soil at Vicksburg, which is very hard and uh, has a hard crust on it, so you could easily build a cave and without wooden supports and stuff. We were doing that, and we went for a drink one night, and Ed Barr said to me, you know, Miller, while you're going to write a really good book on Vicksburg, actually said best book on Vicksburg. I said, no, Ed. And he said, because you don't know a damn thing about it. And I said, well, okay, I'll give you, I don't know a lot about it, but how am I going to write the best book? He said, you're, going, you're coming in on this thing fresh. It's a new thing for you. He said, I you know, from looking you up on Amazon and you move from book to book and you're not just an expert on one thing. You, you move around a lot. You've written books about coal mining, you've books about Chicago, and books about intellectuals. And this is all new to you. And because it's fresh, you're going to get excited about it. And you're going to want to learn everything. Whereas a lot of us veterans of the battle um, get a little jaded. But more than that, we get 
concerned about the little particulars. We're not seeing the forest for the trees, and we're, we're in the trees. And uh, you can maybe bring you know a new kind of perspective to this thing, and that's completely fresh. You want to do that when you start, but you just hope that the material will come forward as you dig and dig. It's like digging for a vein of coal. And you hit that vein, and then you say, "Wow, some great." Great stories here. Uh, I found some unbelievable diaries. One of the refugees that becomes a refugee as a result of Grant's campaign is Jefferson Davis's brother, Joseph Davis. He's a very old man, and he's living with his granddaughter, Lisi is her name. And she's very young. I mean, she's not yet 18. And um, she has a 500-page diary that I found in the, in the state archives, the state archives at Jackson. And it was very compelling. And it showed me how, the, you know, you usually think of refugees with World War II or with Vietnam or, you know, today with Syria and things like that. But there was a gigantic panic migration when Grant came into Mississippi and Louisiana and created a refugee class all over the South. And I wanted to get into the lives of these people. Why are they fleeing? What slaves do they take when they flee? Where do they go? And I found another, this is a well-known diary, it was published by Kate Stone, and she's a young woman who lives along the river in a very handsome plantation with her widowed mother, and she's there throughout the whole campaign. I found a woman, Sarah Morgan, in Baton Rouge, who had a fantastic diary. And I found over a dozen diaries of women inside Vicksburg who were there when the city was besieged by Grant for 47 days. And they talk about the starvation, and they talk about the bombing. Because the Yankees are throwing in a lot of heavy mortars. When I'm talking about mortars, I'm talking about siege mortars. These are things to break down fortifications, usually forts along the river. The gun itself shoots a shell of 240 pounds. It's a, it's a whale of a shell. And uh, they were firing these things high in the sky. It looked like fireworks. And one after the other, indiscriminately, you can't fire a mortar accurately into the city. So they're hitting hospitals and homes and churches. And then Grant, they're firing them from the river, from barges. And uh, Grant's on the other side of Vicksburg, from the land side, on the east side. And he's bombarding the city from that side. So there's a circle of fire around the whole town. And I wanted to know how these people held up. I mean, I tried to picture a young woman, a married woman with her two children, cowering in a cave, a candlelit cave with these bombs exploding all around her, and one direct hit and they're all dead. And guess my, having written about bombing in World War II in my book, Masters of the Air, I had a better sense of you know, the psychology of the situation, of how they, how they handled it, and how amazingly their resolve is unbroken by the siege and by the bombardment. This is another part of a war I didn't realize that when I read the diaries of Union gunners who were firing these shells into the city, one of them is Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect's father. Hmm. That's an interesting diary. And um, they don't apologize after the war. If they write memoirs or at the time when they're writing diaries, they feel that um, these people cho chose to stay in the city. They chose to withdraw from the Union. They chose to break up this great experiment in democracy. Uh, they chose to have slaves. They wanted to be 
And the only reason we're down here and not back in our beds at home and we're behind our plows is because of these people. So they're not concerned about firing on churches and hospitals. And that's a part of the war I, I didn't realize. Vicksburg surrenders on the 4th of July, 1863. How does that change the date from one of celebrating American independence to one of bitterness? And how much of that ambivalence, if any, lingers here in 2020? Well, unfortunately, some of it does linger. The South is changing, but there are still hotbeds of secessionist feeling, I mean, rebel feeling about this issue. I mean, the raging debates recently about, I don't want to get into those, that, that's another topic, uh, Civil War monuments. But Vicksburg, for a long period of time, did not celebrate the 4th of July. There's a lot of arguments as to when it stopped, some say into the 50s. I didn't find that sentiment in, in Vicksburg when I was there. I, I found uh, people I met were very gracious. Now, I disagreed with a lot of them on a lot of issues, including the Civil War, which, you know, they saw in some ardent Confederates supporters still see it as the war of northern aggression. There's still that feeling that you get, but uh, I was never treated uh, with anything but the greatest respect there. So I didn't run into a lot of ugliness, but we're learning today that the ugliness, you know, can be ubiquitous. It can appear anywhere. But there were a lot of hard feelings after the war. I mean, you don't fight a war like this. I mean, the South was a, a, a fifth world country after that war. I mean, they had been stripped of everything. Their property, their industry was destroyed. Their railroad system was smashed. It took a long time to come back. And there's a legacy of bitterness. And you know, it was lasting. And was a one-party state democratic until the 1960s. Nixon and uh, a little bit early, maybe Eisenhower, in some respects. But, um, yeah, it leaves, uh, it leaves a lot of scars. War. It's not an easy thing to forget. It really isn't. And you see, because you see the ardency. I mentioned this woman, Kate Stone, this young, I think she was about 20 years old, daughter of a plantation mistress, a very wealthy farm along the river on the Louisiana side. And she has a luminous autobiography. She could really write, and a lot of these women inside Vicksburg equally well were trained at female academies and they could really write. And you're transported by some of the some of her prose. And she was great at making friends with people too. And she had a very close friend in Louisiana when she became a refugee. And at one point there these two friends are writing to one another and she gets news and she reports the news to her friend. She said, Hallelujah on this great day. Um, the demon, Abraham Lincoln, has been shot by the hero, John Wilkes Booth. And it just makes, sends chills up your spine, you know, uh, when you read something like that. And there you see what I, I call the hotbed ardency that Confederates had, you know, toward the North. Yeah, it was a hard, hard thing to just forget about, the war. And it's fought, with the exception of places like Chambersburg and Gettysburg, it's, it's fought entirely on southern soil. You mentioned Patton. Patton said in that movie that his country had never lost a war. Well, they did. The South lost. Patton's relatives fought on the Confederate side. So eating mule meat. And Grant's, the logician, is going to starve him out. I mean, here 
you always hear these stories about Grant the Butcher throwing his men again and again against impossible odds, just using manpower to overwhelm the enemy. We tried that twice at Vicksburg. He tried to storm the fortifications outside the city before they really had them set up, and he thought he'd driven an army in there and had beaten it in five battles. He thought they'd be really dispirited and defeated in mind and both body, and it was a good time to attack. Well, he was repulsed twice, and he said to Lincoln, he's not going to take any more casualties of that scale anymore, and he's going to starve them out, and we're going to turn in the rifles for the shovels, and uh, we're going to dig our way into Vicksburg, and that's what he does. So he shows himself at Vicksburg not to be the butcher in the sense that his campaign inside Mississippi is a brilliant piece of strategy and tactics. We have Grant the Great Tactician, and at Vicksburg, it's Grant the Quartermaster, who um, is using his supplies to tremendous advantage to starve out the enemy and, uh, and not to sustain unsustainable casualties. So you see Grant in various modes in this in this thing and uh, wherever he goes he has this he gets stopped but he has an unstoppable mentality someone once said just looking at him he had a feeling that he kind of looked like a guy that would knock his head through a wall to get get to his objective (laughs) and he had that kind of healing determination resolve Again, that's Donald L. Miller from our History Author Show interview, Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy. And notice the word broke, that's the key. The South had to be broken, just as Hamas has to be broken, just as Hitler had to be broken, and Tojo, and all the other bad guys out there. Shaka Zulu said something, I'll never forget that miniseries in the 80s. He said, the time to kill a snake is when it is small. And this holds for Shaka's time as it holds for our time, as it held for U.S. Grant's time and for George S. Patton's times. And I'm sure looking back, despite being descended from slaveholders on his mother's side, that President Obama wouldn't have urged the release of Vicksburg, wouldn't have urged Grant to go soft on Vicksburg, wouldn't have said, oh, you're being mean to those Confederate civilians trapped in that city. Why don't you let them have the Mississippi? We have other great rivers. Of course not. He would have wanted the war ended, and he would have wanted to make the South the enemy howl. Breaking the enemy, smashing his things, and forcing him to his knees was the only way to ensure a just and lasting peace remains the case in Israel today. Here's a clip you may have seen on Twitter. Eli Klein is the man who posted it. He's an art dealer, publisher. Sounds like just a regular New Yorker going about his life. Here's what he heard people chanting last night on the streets of Gotham. Intifada, by the way, the word literally means shaking off, but in this context, it's understood to mean calling for a civil uprising, for an insurrection, if you will. However, if you'll permit me aside, the only thing I think of when I hear the Intifada is History of the World Part 1, the 1981 movie by Mel Brooks, as the song The Inquisition about the Spanish Inquisition. Why don't we hear a little bit of that right now? Hit it, Mel. The Inquisition. Let's begin. The Inquisition. Look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. <laughs> right. 
Now I defy any of you to ever hear the word intifada without having a little bit of Mel Brooks singing in the back of your head about the intifada. I just love the fact that he can make a dark, dark subject, something you could still laugh about. Very important to me. But then again, I love dark humor. Monday night on Newsmax, Governor Ron DeSantis had this to say. A foreigner does not have a right to be here. They're here at the grace of the American people. If they're on a student visa, that is absolutely revocable uh, based on government policy. And so what I would say is if you're a foreign national on a student visa, if you're out demonstrating in favor of Hamas and terrorist attacks against uh, innocent people in Israel, uh, I would yank the visa. I would send you home. We only have so many spots at these universities as it is. Uh, I think that, that we need to do more American students to begin with. Uh, nevertheless, we have every right to do it. And if you look at what's happened in Europe, you know, they've imported a lot of people and now it's really changed the underlying dynamics of those societies. You have massive pro-Hamas demonstrations, massive anti-Semitism all over. I don't want that here in the United States. So yes, we will be very forceful. We'll send people back uh, because we just need to nip this in the butt. I, I've seen a lot of stuff people take to the streets, things I disagree. That's fine. But to support openly a terrorist organization well, like that, I well, think that's man, a new low for a lot look, of these look, universities. Okay, that sounds pretty basic. And I speak as somebody who had a couple of roommates who were here on work visas, were very careful to keep their noses clean, wouldn't even go to something like Russia's TV show or anything that might be political because they were banned from that kind of behavior. Those are the rules. They were the rules for my wife as well. They're not allowed to vote. You're not allowed to politic. There's all kinds of legal limitations on you as a guest in the United States. I'll get to those in a minute. But first, our government... The White House, the president's National Security Council spokesman, who is charged with enforcing our laws and the Constitution, or at least respecting them, John Kirby, he says this of the idea that we should revoke the visas of pro-Hamas protesters, and note it's pro-Hamas protesters they're talking about here. That's the way that Governor DeSantis framed it, and so this is the way the question was put to Mr. Kirby. He said it would be a violation of free speech to tell them that they have to leave. Roll it. And there's been an uptick. Um, on the right among some Republicans who have called for um, students or foreign nationals who are demonstrating uh, in some of these pro-Palestine demonstrations or, you know, allegedly pro-Hamas demonstrations to have their student visas pulled or to face deportation. What is the administration's remark, uh, response to those kinds of remarks, that kind of rhetoric? I, I, would just tell you, I would just tell you, you don't have to agree with every sentiment that's expressed in a free country like this uh, to um, to stand by the, 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 idea, the First Amendment and the idea of peaceful protest. I'll leave it at that. You'll have to love how that unidentified reporter puts that. There's been an uptick on the right among some Republicans. Well, we can't listen to Republicans, can we? They're evil, terrible people. I've just got to tell you, they were Republicans, so feel free to blow this off. You can't just say people, of course. Well, that would make them sound like they were human beings. We have to put that little caveat in there. Some on the right, some Republicans. Yeah, I know there are plenty of people who are on the left, maybe even this gentleman who posted it, Eli Klein, who ain't loving people screaming for Hamas and Jewish blood walking down their streets. They are not happy with that. This is not, as everything has to be cast, a Republican and Democratic issue. Although if people on the right are going to be cast as the ones who are for Israel, well, I'm all for it. But you know where that leaves people on the other side. You are not permitted to peacefully protest, as he put it. And I doubt very much these are peaceful protests. What did we have last week? We had 
that shriveled up old landlord who killed that poor little boy because he said he was Muslim, that six-year-old boy. And why did he do it? Well, if you listen to MSNBC, he did it because he listened to talk radio. It's heartbreaking to hear a six-year-old boy is killed in the Chicago area because of a foreign conflict, because of hate that arises out of a foreign conflict. This is a family, Joy, that fled from the West Bank, fled from the occupied Palestinian territories over a decade ago to get away from violence there, and they lost their son in the United States of America in 2023. It's absolutely horrific. And you have to ask the question, who wakes up in the morning and thinks, I'm going to kill a kid today? I'm not just going to kill a kid. I'm going to stab the kid to death, and I'm not just going to stab them once or twice. Stab them 26 times. A six-year-old boy. What kind of hate makes someone do that? It's not hate you're born with, Joy. It's hate you're taught. And I do not believe it was a coincidence that NBC News is reporting tonight that this alleged killer was an avid listener of conservative talk radio. We have heard some vicious and vile anti-Palestinian rhetoric uh, in recent days from people like Tom Cotton, a Republican senator, saying, as far as he's concerned, Israel can bounce rubble in Gaza. Lindsey Graham saying Israel should level Gaza. Uh, Ron DeSantis saying everyone in Gaza is an anti-Semite and shouldn't be allowed into America as refugees. Marjorie Taylor Greene saying if you're pro-Palestinian, you're pro-Hamas. That is the kind of dehumanizing rhetoric. Some would say genocidal. What does it mean to flatten, level an area where two million people live? That is the kind of rhetoric that in many cases prompts people to acts of terror. Rhetoric leads to hate. Hate leads to violence. <laughs> well, I don't know what is more peaceful form of protest than talk radio is, but somehow free speech rights. Talk radio, who never knew this guy, who we don't even know who we listened to, as an industry, we all inspired this piece of garbage to stab that kid. There's a little collective guilt. There's collective guilt for everybody who's in talk radio. There's collective guilt for everybody on the right. But somehow, if you're out there chanting in favor of an uprising, a civil uprising, if you're using the language of Hamas, if Hamas is applauding what you're doing, you're on the side of the angels and Jack Kirby won't touch you. Let me read you something about visas from my May 3rd New York Sun column. I was quoting the Federal Election Commission and it says, Foreign nationals are prohibited from making any contribution or donation of money or other thing of value in connection with any federal, state, or local election. This is why people who are on visas, they stay out of politics. The FEC states that regulations include a broad prohibition on foreign national activity. Foreign nationals? Why, that's like the people who are foreign nationals here on student visas who are out there calling for civil unrest and an insurrection, and an intifada. I'll read it to you again, the FEC, there it is in black and white, a broad prohibition on foreign national activity, and that means you can't do it. You can't do the politicking. You don't have the same free speech as a United States citizen. Gosh, we certainly did hear a lot about Russian meddling and foreign meddling in our elections. Who was it who was talking about that? It was somebody, I don't know. I don't think Biden ever mentioned it, certainly, right? And yet now we're welcoming people to come onto our streets and we're going to say they have the right to free speech. Go speak to anybody if you haven't, if you're not a person yourself who's gone through the U.S. visa process or the immigration naturalization process. Ask them what exactly all that fine print says. They'll tell you about all the limits that they have. They do not have the same free speech rights as Americans. They don't have a lot of the same rights as Americans. That's why they're on visas.
And even if they did, calling for an insurrection, calling for an uprising, supporting terrorists, you've heard all of these various clips. There are many of them out there. There are people legitimately saying Hamas is good. There are people legitimately saying death to Israel. If you can't throw those people out, who can you throw out? What do they do for the United States of America? What good is it for us to have people like that here? The FEC also says visa holders who knowingly and willingly engage in these activities, meaning political activities, may be subject to an FEC enforcement action, criminal prosecution, or both. So I think Governor DeSantis is on the right side of this, but it's really just the sane side of it. And I think anybody would look at somebody cheering for death and say, you know what? Maybe we don't need that guy. Maybe we can get another student, somebody who cares about America and cares about innocent life and is here to study, which is the purpose of the visa, not to march around in the streets and call for a civil uprising. But that's just me. I have another funny story I thought of from the Rush Limbaugh days. This one comes from about 20 years ago now. And I have to say it was one of the rare times where I wasn't on the same page as Rush. Me and those of you know Coco from the radio show, his wife Cookie on the radio show. Rush used to call me Coco Jr. This George, who is Coco, is also Greek. Rush used to do this bit on the Tomb of the Unknown Bowler. <laughs> the Tomb of the Unknown Bowler. Sounds so absurd now. But he would say it was in Raytown, Missouri. And it was a place he would talk about all the time. And people would call and say, where is it? And he would just play out that bit. And as I said in yesterday's story about the man who called about the antipasto, Rush always was just deadpan, and he would never make fun of anybody, but he would string a caller along. Well, in this one, he got me and he got George because it was so earnest the way that Rush said it. The Tomb of the Unknown Bowler, he named Raytown, Missouri. So what did we do? Well, we said, we've got to go get a picture of this tomb. This is before the internet was really going. I think 2002 was the year. I call all over Raytown. Again, there wasn't a lot of emails, things like that. And I'm saying, can you tell me where the, tomb of the unknown bowler is? This one very nice lady in the city council, a city council woman in Raytown, Missouri. She says, well, I don't know, but there's a cemetery in the east part of town. Would you like me to go look around? Well, yes, please, ma'am. If it's no problem, that would be great. It'd be wonderful if we did it. I'm thinking it's a real place. And the woman goes out there. She's, I walked around for about 20 minutes and I didn't find it. Oh my gosh, looking back, I feel like the dumbest person. And then we started to talk and oh my God. And then we started to realize it. You know, when you step back for a minute, look at something, realize how wrong you might've been and you see it from a new light. And we started to say, oh my gosh. So we emailed Rush and we told him all the things we'd been doing, all the efforts we've been making to try to get somebody to send us a picture of the actual place to prove it to this person. And he wrote back simply three words. It's a bit. <laughs> so from there on after, we would always have a laugh with him when we talked to him and he would ask us about, you know, hey, did you ever find those pictures of the tomb of the unknown bowler? And then he would tell the story far better than I just did. But funny moment for Raytown, Missouri. And in fact, I think that I might have been in a newspaper about that because they knew that I had called down there from the radio show to try to find the tomb of the unknown bowler. But it did not exist, alas. So I guess that was a lesson for me. Don't be gullible. And it's one that I share honestly with all of you so you can say, what a dimwit Dean is. Who the heck is this guy that Derek brought in? But you too, my friend, could sometimes be caught. And at least if you're going to get duped, try to get duped by the best in the business. And that's what I did with Rush in that incident. 
Well, that's it for today's Derek Hunter podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed that snippet of the interview with Donald L. Miller about Vicksburg, please do go either to historyauthor.com. You can stream it right from there. You can find it anywhere fine pod is found. You can also find it on YouTube if you like to listen to podcasts there. Really great interview, really good book. I went a little long on that one. I saw it was an hour and 12 minutes, but the book is, is just great. It's a, it's a masterful book. It got a lot of praise, not just from me. I'll be back tomorrow. Remember, you can find me at History Dean on Twitter or at nysun.com. And you can also find me at historyauthor.com. You spent almost an hour of your life with me, and I really appreciate it. That's an hour you'll never get back. I don't think you should listen to any radio hosts who don't value your time that much. They're just giving you live reads and stuff. Meh, turn it off. Find something better. Demand that same kind of excellence. Demand somebody who you enjoy, who's going to inform and entertain you. I know those guys are not easy to find, but Derek Hunter is definitely one of them. Please do continue to support him at patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast and at DerekHunter.locals.com. And as for all of you, remember, everybody... Every last one of you, have fun tonight. Stand-up philosopher, I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Mm -hmm.